Good evening all. Thanks for coming out. Thank you, Jesus, for showing up. Our Redeemer has already showed up. You, uh, again, songs always seem to coincide. I think he sets this up. It's almost like a, yeah, Redeemer. So we were, he's worthy to be worshipped, right? He redeemed us. Redemption, what does redemption mean? I mean, it's not a word that we didn't use very often when I was a kid growing up, but now that we got cans, it's pretty simple. Redemption Center, the next time you drive by them, think about that. You've been redeemed. What does that mean? Obviously, the biblical term means it was bought back, right? So some people, like me and hopefully you, I'm glad I got bought because I was ruined, redeemed, repurposed, however you want to call it. So now all of a sudden, making beauty out of ashes. But some people, like, you know, I'm not going to be bought. I'm not going to be told what to do. And it depends which side of how you understand who he is and whether you like that thought or not. I don't want to be ruled over. Come to find out that we're all being ruled over. And uh, just something to be thinking about. We were talking about that earlier today. What really do we decide? How much control do we have? We think we're free. I mean, even houses, right? You know, I own my home. Well, actually, I own the right to live on my home. Stop paying my taxes, what happens? <laughs> it's not really mine. You know, I might think it's mine, but did we choose our parents? Did we choose the country we were born in? Did we choose the color of our skin? Did we choose what era we'd be born in? We really didn't get to choose anything. We're really not in control. And uh, it's freeing once you realize that there is somebody in control rather than circumstances or rather than trying to make things happen on your own. Because if you are the Lord of your life and you're trying to maneuver through this, it's really hard. It was, it was intended to be hard because that's not the intention of us being here was to make a path for ourselves and figure things out on our own. I remember even being a young child thinking, and this is how depraved I am, but <laughs> even when I was young, I already gave up. I'm thinking, I can't imagine being married. Now I've been married, 35 years is coming up. I can't imagine not being married, but I couldn't imagine being married. I couldn't imagine having kids I'm still in high school or maybe not even in high school, I think in high school thinking, I'm gonna slowly get old, fall apart, be in pain, and then die. What's the point? Nothing made sense. And that all, who, who hasn't come to a conclusion, why are we here? That's an age-old, I mean, God placed eternity in our hearts, and, you know, there is an answer. Some people just don't like the answer, so they look for another. But there's a good answer. And just so thankful for a Redeemer. So let's just uh, pray and get started here. Father, we just thank you that you cared enough to come and do something about the problem that we created. Lord, you've bought us back. You're a good Lord. We praise you for that. We love you for that. Uh, Help us to learn more of you. Your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. You're a good God. We just worship you for who you are and for what you've done. And uh, thank you for setting us free. Lord, in, uh, in being redeemed, in being, having a new master, there's freedom. We just thank you for that. We're free to worship you. 
and uh, fill us with your spirit, fill us with your love, teach us. I pray these aren't just words going forth into, into our heads, Lord, but you would be speaking individually to each person here something that you want to say to us, to them. Let it be personal. You're a personal God. You came and died for each one of us. You created each one of us. Lord, you have right of ownership because of creation. Help us to yield to it, that we might be set free. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 1 Corinthians 7. Um, you'd think by now, I didn't teach last month. I kind of like this once a month teaching. It gives you a lot of time to study and dig into it and prepare. And I... Uh, was away last month, so I had more time than normal, and yesterday he kind of changed stuff. Like, that's not fair. I had seven weeks into this, and now I got one day, but same portion of scripture where we've been, um, and my life had been filled, makes me wonder, speaking to me on marriage, and uh, through Rob's teaching through Matthew, and then through Corinthians, pretty much three chapters, kind of had something to do with it the whole time. And uh, just got through with that last time, yet we're going to not totally get away with it. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, um, just thinking on this whole topic too. Uh, just a background, some separate thoughts that hopefully tie together when we get there. I originally titled this, uh, Walking with God, a Journey, Not Just Destination. So God has a call in our lives. And being people, being Americans, being different demeanors of people, God says, okay, we're going to get here. And I'm thinking, okay, why well, in a faster way? <laughs> I'm just going to take this way. I'm going to go over the mountain. I don't want to walk around it. It takes too long. And uh, God says, no, I want to walk with you. There's things I want to show you around the mountain. There's, there's things that you need to have happen to you going around the mountain to prepare you for what's on the other side of the mountain. You don't even know what's on the other side of the mountain. And I'm just sometimes mentally... Let's get it done. Let's go. And uh, God's like, no, just walk with me. I'll set the pace. I'll set the direction. There's things we're going to do. I just wanted to spend time with you. And he can take me home whenever he wants. I mean, he could come tonight. He could do whatever he wants. He's more interested in time with him. And he's timeless. He's got all the time in the world. It's one of the things I like the most about God is he's patient because I'm not always where I need to be, and he's patient with me. And one of the things I dislike the most about God is he's too patient. Sometimes I want things done faster. And uh, he just works on us. Another title I was going to be speaking a lot on, which is kind of what he changed yesterday, is uh, this term permissive will. Has anyone heard of, so Lord, your will be done. God has a will. He allowed us to each have a will, right? We have free will. I don't know how free it is. But we'll talk about that. But what's permissive will? Just Has anyone ever heard of the term God's permissive will? Do you even know what that means? And uh, I'm not sure people that think they know what it means get it right. So we'll be talking a lot about that. And I, I just asked a question, is permissive will sin? To me, it's kind of like saying politically correct. Two plus two is four, is that correct? Yeah, is it politically correct? Anytime you have to put politically in front of it, it means it's really not correct, but we're just going to try to make it sound correct, so we'll make it politically correct. Otherwise, you just say it's right. So permissive will. If it's his will, you call it his will. If you're calling it permissive will, it's something he's allowing, and it's not his perfect will. And we'll get a lot into that. And uh, just being redeemed, being on a journey, 
walking through this world. We have a destination. He has no problem getting us there. The question is, is what are we going to look like when we get there? And as Pastor Rob was teaching this morning, uh, we, as we journey through, um, there's rewards that we get. Sin's been dealt with once on the cross. That's good news. <laughs> now the question comes is, what does heaven look like? I mean, I, that's, you can see parts. It's really not perfectly clear as far as I can tell. But it's going to be a worship session. We're going to be worshiping him because he's worthy. He's awesome. He's great. He's glorious. We're going to be enamored. We're going to be head over heels in love. And we're just going to spend time looking at him in awe, saying, yeah, that's my husband. That's my God. And it's going to be incredible. But our ability to worship him, it seems, is going to come. We get this from um, a part where it says that they cast their crowns at his feet, saying, you are worthy, O Lord. We get the crowns from things that we receive while we're here on earth. So we can say it doesn't matter as long as I get there. But when you get there, you're going to want to worship him well. I remember years and years ago, there was a guy here teaching um, Danny Crespo, and he had come back from Puerto Rico, and he was sharing... It's kind of like if you're sitting there watching a really intense movie that's intricate and detailed and you really like trying to figure it out. Or you can be like a four-year-old watching the same movie for the 110th time and you have every verse memorized. You don't even need to have it on anymore. They're both fulfilled and happy, but their ability to express it is different. Everyone, you're not going to regret being in heaven. And it says every tear will be wiped away, but there seems to be different levels of ability to worship. That's kind of what we're going to be talking about, this journey that we're doing, walking along. So chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So we talked about this last time, just remembering that this was the beginning. The first six chapters switch here where now all of a sudden he's answering questions. So they had written a letter to him, and now they had some concerns, and he's answering these questions. And again, we have the answers, but we don't have the question. I mentioned it's kind of like a game of Jeopardy. So you read the, the answer, and you're like, okay, I wonder what the question was. Oh, is it okay to touch a man? Or, you know, again, there were different philosophies we know from history that there were people that said this flesh is bad, the spirit is good. Therefore, anything you do in the flesh is bad. And therefore, they came to two conclusions. One group said, it doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. It's all going to be destroyed. Who cares? So do whatever you want. And another said, no, you need to do nothing in the flesh. You need to, so if I'm married, I shouldn't be intimate with my wife because the flesh is bad. And Paul answered that clearly in verses 1 to 9, that, again, your body's not your own. He redeemed all of us, body, soul, and spirit, so if he redeemed us, then he's the one that gets to decide what we do. In chapter, I'm sorry, verse 10 to 16, he talked about marriage and divorce. And again, to make that point, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, so moving on in the chapter, we've gotten to verse 17. I'm just going to read to the end of the chapter. It's just reading it and then come back and talking on it. It's one way to make sure I get to chapter 8 next time I teach. <laughs> I'll fill in details as I can go. Uh, but it does say, in, if you turn with me real quick to verse 29, and I think these verses here, 29 to 32, set the tone for, we'll go back and read the whole chapter. So 
1 Corinthians 7, verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. 32, but I want you to be without care. I want you to be without concern. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. So all of these things are setting up to teach a point that your lives are here for him. You are redeemed. It tells us at the end of chapter 6, in verse 20, for you were bought at a price, you were redeemed. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So then he's making this principle. He did it in marriage, and he talked about marriage and divorce. And in verse 17, keeping in mind the whole premise of why he's talking about this. Seven, verse 17, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordained in all the churches. And again, I talked about this walking with God. This is where I get it from. As you were called and as you were equipped. So God has a plan for each person's life. You didn't pick it. He did. You're here for a purpose. He knows it. He is the one that has the ability for you to perform what your purpose is. You don't possess it yourself. In fact, that's another study for another time. But the greatest strength that you have in the flesh is your worst nightmare, is your worst enemy. The things that people, you can do a whole Bible study. What was Peter's strength? Boldness. He fell to a servant girl. What was Paul's strength? He says, all those things I counted as rubbish. The things that you're strong in naturally are the, you'll depend upon yourself because you think you got it. And it says that the things that you know that you're weak in, you're just going to cry out and ask for help. So God uses the weak people because it shows he, they're the ones willing to receive his strength because they're actually not weak. When you have God's strength, God's pretty strong. And just so I don't forget to say it tonight, he's also pretty smart. <laughs> and so God distributes to each one. And sometimes that rubs people wrong. As Rob was saying this morning, how come they have a hard life and I don't? Well, what would make something hard or not hard? Because it all depends what you are trying to accomplish. Do you think you're supposed to be here for 80 years and be healthy the whole time? Well, if that's what you think is supposed to happen, that's pretty hard because you can't make yourself healthy. Anything can happen to you. If you think you're supposed to be rich, are you supposed to be rich? Are people supposed to have money? I think God wants some people to have money, some people not to have money. If you're a child growing up and God has a plan for your life, it tells us in Psalm 139, he knew it before you were even created. He, you're not here by accident. And you weren't here because your parents had an accident. He's the one that opened the womb. He's the one that set things in order. He knows why you're here. Some people might be called to be a missionary in a poor country. So they, they need to learn to live without. Other people might have the gift of giving, and they need to learn how to give. Can you imagine if every single one of us was exactly the same? Life would be boring. First of all, Paul says that the, the body is, all the parts interact to make a whole. You don't want to have a bunch of eyeballs. It just, so we, and also, we need each other, and that's something that God has ordained from before time. So he created a body because the parts intermingle. He says, the world will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. You are all individual, you are all unique, and you all form a body, a living organism, and it's on purpose, and you're all different. So don't compare yourself to each other. 
17, this journey, this walk with God. What does it mean to walk with God? As God has distributed to each one, and he's talking about believers here, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And that's coming from Paul, who was the Jew of Jews, who would have said to being circumcised and keeping the law is everything. So now you might think Paul just went insane here for a couple of verses. What do you mean be uncircumcised? <laughs> How does that happen? Which actually, you can read a lot about that, and some people think it's a picture, and other people said, no, actually, there were people that did that. So if you were a Jew in this Roman era, and you would go to the bathhouses, a lot of the commerce was taken there, and they actually had a procedure where they would actually make you look like you weren't circumcised because you wanted business. And he's, it was a worldly, entrepreneuring thing that would happen. And again, this is a confusing verse, which is why I read verses 29 to 32 first. He wants you to be without care, and he wants you to be holy-hearted serving the Lord. He goes, whatever state you're in is fine. And I think the whole, I'll ruin the whole Bible study right now in case you fall asleep soon. You'll get it right now, <laughs> if you're still awake. Um, when you were born, you were totally dependent on your parents, on God. And then you grow up, and then you start getting an attitude, and then you start having, pushing your will. Then you start talking back to your mom when your dad wasn't around, or maybe that was just me. <laughs> but you start... You start testing things and you're going places. The next thing you know, you, you start maneuvering through your life, trying to do what you think is right. And then you have a plan or a thought for your life or a dream, or you're hopeless like I was and think there's nothing that's ever going to happen to me because who am I and I can't do anything. But you're self-centered and you're going forward. And when you get redeemed, God, you realize, first of all, that there's a plan for you. You're not a mistake. Everything falls into place you have this relationship and this love filling your heart that all of a sudden everything's complete. And I think he's saying is you're now starting this journey and you have a commander, you have a head. The body has a head. And if you don't know what it is, stop making decisions. Just walk with me. Let the spirit lead you. You now have a captain of your soul. So what used to happen when a decision had to be made? Well, I had to figure out what to do. I think he's trying to get us to a point where he's like, you know what, I can tell you, I can show you, I can walk with you, I'll help. Don't be rash in making decisions on your own. So when you get saved, just stop and wait. I think that's the, what, what he's saying. If you are circumcised, don't become uncircumcised. If you're uncircumcised, don't be circumcised. Keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And Paul, again, almost the whole New Testament is contradicting Judaizers about keeping the law to be right with God. That's not what he's saying. He's basically saying God has a plan for your life. Let it happen. Follow him. Seek it. 20. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedom. Freedman, likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. 
Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. And he's not saying change can't happen. He's also not saying, well, if you're a prostitute, just keep being a prostitute until God calls you out. If you're a hitman for the mafia, just, you know what, don't put a little fish on your hitman card, passing it out, saying, well, you're going somewhere. I don't know which one, but you're going up or down today. No. He's like, you, that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, let God do it, because he's about to go on and say, if God frees you, you're free. If you're a slave, then in, in freedom is available, you take it. So I'm not telling you to be unwise. I'm just saying, don't be the one governing your life. God's better at it than you are. He's the only one that knows it, first of all. He's the only one that can bring it to pass. He's a, he's a good God and a loving God. Verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Whatever state you are, married or unmarried, and, it's, and this is we're not sure about what it means, because of the present distress. So something was happening in the city of Corinth that was difficult. There was a distress. And if Paul's calling it a distress, because you look at what Paul calls a light affliction. <laughs> if, this is, if this is hard, it's hard. So he's basically about to go on um, 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So it's basically saying, can you imagine it again? Back then, there's tribulation. Tribulation is they were killing Christians at the sword. They were feeding them to lions. They were burning them alive. And if you have a family, your concern's going to be for them. I, I might be bold enough to say, you know what? I'm going to heaven. I'll go today. What are you threatening me with heaven by killing me? But if you're going to torture or rape my wife in front of me, that's, that's a hard distress. He's like, you know what? You're better. You can do, go better. And if I have a wife, I'm not gonna, it's going to be hard. I'm not going to let that happen to it. He's, he's saying, wherever you're at, just wait and seek the Lord and let him show you. And again, God's speaking through Paul. Paul is speaking to the whole church at Corinth. So some people there are married, some people aren't. Some people there are supposed to be married, and some aren't. So he's not going to sit there and make one rule or one law and say this is for everybody because he's speaking to a whole congregation. Each person has a, a specific walk with the Lord, and it's their responsibility to seek it out. You're better off if you're married. Take care of them. It's going to be hard. They need you. Don't walk out on them when, you, when they need you the most. If you're not married, then don't grab a burden that God hasn't put on you by being concerned for them. But, verse 28, even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And this word virgin actually just means an unmarried person. And we know most of the time back then, if you weren't married, you were a virgin, which is God's plan. But this actually just specifically means an unmarried person. He's saying marriage isn't sin. It's not wrong to get married. He's just giving wise counsel and basically saying, if you're not supposed to be married, don't do it. Sometimes we just want something. And if you are supposed to be married, do it. It's not sin to get married. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. But I would spare you. It would be difficult because of this tribulation and this present distress going on in Corinth. 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, 
so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use this world as not misusing it. You can meditate on that tomorrow all day. That's condemning. Could be. Not that we should be condemned, but convicted. For the form of this world is passing away. What is the world? And I don't mean what is it. I mean, what is it to you? Is it a mission field? Is it a playground? Is it some place I go to be entertained and then go back home and worship God? Don't misuse it. The form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. In other words, her body and her spirit are totally dedicated to only seeking what God's will is for their life. And that's not what God's word says for a wife. A wife is to honor and follow the head in her home, a man. You can't have two heads of a home. It just doesn't work. You can't have two senior pastors. It doesn't work. You can't have two governors of a city. You can't have two presidents. There's an order. God has an order. And, and sometimes we might not even like that, that fact, but what area or stage in your life is there not somebody over you? There's police out in the street. There's a job. You name it. Everywhere you go, there's got to be order. If there's no order, there's chaos. And, and Satan is the author of confusion. God is a God of order. He does everything decently and in order. And we might not like it, but when it's not there, we complain about it. We need it. In this word virgin, earlier it was male, then it goes to, to either anyone unmarried, and then eventually here it goes to female. And a lot of people in this portion of 1 Corinthians 7, when it talks about if somebody has a virgin, so cultures are different. There's times when there were arranged marriages. There was times like Mary and Joseph, they were betrothed, so he had a virgin. They're technically legally under contract. They weren't married yet. There was no intimacy allowed. But in order to get depart from each other, they actually had to get a divorce. So it was a legal arrangement, even though they weren't married. Some people think this is talking about the dead. The dead was the one that would get the, the bounty. He would be the one that would decide who his daughter married. And, you know, the dead had the virgin. And there's reason to believe later on in this that it's actually speaking of the dead. It's talking about his daughter rather than a man. We'll get to it when we're there. Um, 34, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, I'm not trying to control your life, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And sometimes when you get older, you realize things aren't always what you thought they'd be. It seems like sometimes when people are married, they're like, man, could serve the Lord if I just wasn't married. If you're unmarried, you're like, man, I could just do better if I was married. And it's like, God, God can use either. It doesn't really matter. 
not, one's not better than the other. The question is, is, what is God's plan for your life? What has he called you to and what has he equipped you with? And quite frankly, if you're single, there's gonna be difficulties and you're gonna to have to seek the Lord and he's gonna be the answer to them. And if you're married, there's gonna be difficulties and you're gonna to have to seek the Lord and he's gonna be the answer for them. You're not gonna be able to get away from it. God's gonna work on you. Either way, just remember that. Be taught that from older people. Paul's wise. He's, we believe both been married and single now. We don't know if his wife died. We don't know if she left him. We don't know if he was ever married, but in the position that he had, it would have only been proper that he was married. So with his life, he's experienced both. Sometimes you can learn from people that have been through it. The lessons you learn by yourself can be both painful but well taught. Sometimes you won't remember them. It's hard to learn from other people's mistakes, but it's a lot easier. Paul's sharing wisdom here. 36, but if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes, he does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, in other words, he's been given the gift of celibacy and he's able to walk in it, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin does well. So then he who gives her in marriage, this is where we believe that it's probably, it could be the dad, because only the dead gives the virgin in marriage. But he who does not give her in marriage does better. 39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. You are not allowed to marry anyone. You need to be marrying somebody in the Lord, whether you're single or remarrying. God has instructions, but she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So he's talking about husband dying, remarrying. We talked about that last time, about remarrying after divorce, the reasons for divorce, biblically, I think there's three, or, or abandonment. If, if the unbeliever wants to depart from the believer, you're to let them go, you're free, you're not under any law. Uh, sexual immorality and death. Um, that comes to a whole nother question on Well, we finish the chapter. Flip with me real quick, Deuteronomy 24. Remain in the state that you were in. I think that ties to let God be the Lord of your life, walk with him, let him choose and decide. What does this walking with God mean? What is permissive will? So. It's only four verses. Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, here's a guy that looks at his wife and he's unhappy. 
and he finds an uncleanness in her. Much debate over that word in the in the Levitical background of things. Two, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So here's the background. Here's what the law said. We know that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. We know how many, how many sins are there? Is, it even, is there even a number? Is this a sin? What's sin mean? Sin means to miss the mark, right? So if I was at a target range and I'm shooting, and let's just say like some fluke happened and I didn't hit the bullseye. I, okay, I, I missed the bullseye a lot. <laughs> let's say Tom was shooting and he missed the bullseye once. <laughs> in, the, in the old days, somebody would yell out, sin. In other words, there's a mark that he's shooting at and he missed it. He missed the mark. You didn't hit what you're aiming for. It's kind of funny because that already implies there's something we're supposed to be aiming for. We have a purpose in life. You were created for a plan. There's a goal, and we are to walk towards it, and how we get there matters. Sin is just not fulfilling God's purpose intent. So how many, are there seven deadly sins? Has anyone ever heard that term, seven deadly sins? Are there seven deadly sins? Every sin is deadly. The wages of sin is death. Every sin causes death. I don't know where they get that from. I guess it makes you feel about the rest of them. Eight to infinity. I don't know. I guess, how many are unforgivable? One. It's one unforgivable sin. And that is, so God doesn't condemn you for being sick. He's the one that put us here and created us. He knew the state that we would be in. We're born spiritless, or spirit dead. And the whole, the, he's the cure. So he doesn't condemn us for being sick. He condemns us for rejecting the cure. There is only one cure. Some people say, I can't believe it. You say there's only one way to God. We should just be happy that there is a way to God. There's a way to God. There's a way to be redeemed. There's a way to be forgiven. And, and, and not believing what the Holy Spirit says to be true about the Messiah is the only thing that can't be forgiven. Every other sin is forgivable. That being said... We have is permissive will sin. We'll talk about that. So this whole marriage and divorce, Deuteronomy, we just read it. Jesus comes. He's like way more gracious than they are. He speaks with power. They're kind of like taken back. They catch a woman in the act of adultery. Let's stone her. He doesn't stone her. In fact, he makes them feel guilty. I mean, they walk away. They're like, wow, who is this guy? Of course, they're not in a nation anymore. Those laws aren't in effect anymore. He basically just says, you know what, I don't condemn you. Just don't sin anymore. Just walk with me. But they come to him now about this whole marriage thing. Turn with me to Matthew 19. Sorry, I should have had you turn there earlier. I knew where I was going. Matthew 19. 
Verse 1, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judah beyond the Jordan. Verse 2, and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And again, one of the camps, two major camps, one said uncleanness in in Deuteronomy meant sexually. And another camp just said, no, if they cause you to sin, it's uncleanness. If she burns my toast and I get mad at her, I'm angry and I'm not supposed to be. That's what they're asking. Is there any reason? What's, what's up with this whole thing? And Jesus answered and said to them in verse 4, have you not read? That in and of itself stings because these are the teachers of the law. These are the professors. They're the ones that know everything they thought. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they're like, no, we were reading out of Deuteronomy. Why'd you go to Genesis? <laughs> it's like, we, we don't, that's not what we were talking about. I don't, now you're making me uncomfortable. Seven, they said to him, Okay, I'm going to get lawyer on you. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? Did you, did you just read it, right? When did Moses command them to do it? He just said, if you find uncleanness and she leaves and you put a bill of divorce, he didn't tell them to put a certificate of divorce in their hand. He just said it happened. Jesus, like, will get them on a plurality or a crossing of a T. I mean, everything is specific. And he's like, it all matters. Just read it. Go slow, read it. Let it affect you. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That's kind of what Paul was telling people. If you're not ready for this, you're better off not doing it. God takes it seriously because it's a picture. It represents something. It's supposed to be prophetic. It's supposed to be about Christ and his church. There's things we learn about God as we're married. There's things we learn about God as we're parents. There's things we learn about God as we're involved in ministry. There's things we learn about God when we're out in public. He wants to teach you in everything. Every desire that you have is from him to teach you something. The question is, what are we doing with it? Are we honoring him? Are we letting him redeem it? And then are we getting to know him better? Or are we using this world for, as a playground and using our appetites to, to, to satisfy ourselves and then come to find out that they're really not satisfying at all? And quite frankly, this... You can read stuff that you've read a hundred times and next thing you know, he just asks you a question in the middle of it and you're like, oh, so what's permissive will? So he allowed divorce. What does it mean he allows something? I shouldn't even ask this because I don't have an answer. <laughs> he gave us will. We can do whatever we want, right? So if you're a believer and he gives you will, a permissive will, he allowed you to get divorced. Well, what would, what would the... So being Mark, because I'm insane... I asked my question, so if he didn't allow it, what would it look like? If you get divorced, he kills you? You lose your salvation? What does not allowing it mean? But he allows it. And I'll give you the best thing that I, I can come up with 
permissive will. So the word here, permitted, means suffer, permit, give liberty, or to allow. That's what he did with them because their hearts were hard. So here he is talking to his people. He has a prophetic picture of what he wants it to look like. The problem is it's Christ in the church. You know where the problem is? I'm not Jesus. <laughs> You're not Jesus. We fail. So it's supposed to look like something, and it doesn't look perfectly because we mess it up. So he doesn't just say, well, the picture doesn't work anymore. He allows us to be human. He has a plan. He has a fix. He wants to walk with you. He doesn't give up on you. He allows it. And if he didn't allow sin, I don't know if any of us would have made it a day. Right? Baptism should be... You get saved, they dunk you, and they hold you down until you go home because that's the only chance I have of not sinning. I'll probably sin under the water before I die in the fight. <laughs> but but it, you're a testimony of grace. You're just walking and you fail. And sometimes failing is the thing that opens the door that other people can see something. Yes, I did wrong. And I know that you do the same way. And I'm not saying I'm better than you because I don't have that desire anymore or that, even that I fail in that anymore. I just, I've been forgiven of it. I know it's wrong. I actually have less of an excuse because the Holy Spirit gives me the potential to not do that. I have an option. Before I was saved, I didn't. What is God's best for you? What's God's best for you? And we fail on that all the time. But permissive will allows second best. That's not what God wants, though. You can walk in his best. Just like a thought, right, years ago, after Katrina, went down to there to minister. Actually went down multiple times. And I was wondering, in fact, I, the Lord clearly spoke through Isaiah 61 multiple times, miracles. It was one of the most spiritual times in my life, seeing God do things. And I was wondering, there wasn't a Calvary Chapel down there, am I supposed to go start one? And we were sleeping on a church floor. There was tons of people there from all over the country. It was amazing. There was a church van in almost every driveway. People were thinking FEMA. I'm thinking, ask the people that start one. And we were sleeping on a church floor. There was tons of people there from all over the country. It was amazing. There was a church van in almost every driveway. People were thinking FEMA. I'm thinking, ask the people that were there. The church fixed Pascagoula, Mississippi, not, not the government. But... I don't believe I was supposed to go. And if I was, I didn't listen to him because here I am. But does that mean if that was God's plan for my life, that what God's plan for my life in the book, every, yes, this morning I should have woke up down there, so how can I even be in his will today? It says that God's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I think that that's what grace shows. If you, every day you start over. Any moment you can start over. Some people say grace is cheap. I say it's one of the hardest things that there is because you can't quit. You can't feel sorry for yourself and say, I don't have a little pity party. Grace says, right now, get up, walk with me. Yeah, it hurt. Yeah, you blew it. Yeah, your pride hurts. I'm not who I thought I was because I'm not surprised. I knew you were going to do this before I saved you, and I still, I still chose to save you. And today I have a plan for your life, and I knew where you would be this morning. And my plan goes there. I think that's what it means we settle for it. I don't know if it was Pastor Jeff, Pastor Billy, somebody years ago, multiple times I heard him say, you will always have as much of Jesus as you want, but you will, but you will never have as much of him 
as he wants as he wants for you. And that's kind of that kind of hurts because I wish I had more Jesus. And if I don't, then it's my fault. He wants you to be full of him. He's made everything available for you to have as much of him as you want. His perfect will for your life. Right, and it all goes back. So how did we get here? What's this whole will problem? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think it was a fruit that tainted the genetics of Adam, right? It probably was just any fruit. It's all about the will. God had a tree, had a fruit. Don't eat that. So for him, in order to eat it, he had to make a decision. I know better than God. I can choose for myself what's best. I can be just like God. Knowing right and wrong. And even God said they became wise that they can know right and wrong just like him. So you can either just obey him or you can figure it out for yourself. You can just walk in God's perfect will for your life. The problem then comes is how do I know what it is? Well, then you've got to humble yourself. Then you've got to go to him. And that's all part of the journey. And we think, Lord, get through this journey so I can get to the destination. God's like, I just want to go for a walk with you. Why are you so worried about getting there? Just spend the day with me. I'm gracious. I'm kind. Get to know me. You'll love me. I am not like your flesh. I'm not like the world. I am not this taskmaster. I just want to walk with you. Spend time with me. Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. Who are you going to serve? And he makes it really clear, life or death. That's the choice. Sometimes we think a good life, a better life, or not that good life. I'm going to eventually do something. I know it's going to be bad, but no. He's like, it's actually life or death. It's that that clear. That's how God sees it. Do we believe him? Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. There's a verse we all know. So what does that mean? Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Does that mean the more I sin, the better off I'll be because the more grace is there? I think we'll touch on that, this next portion of Scripture. Along with God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So did you flip with me to 2 Samuel 24. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. If you're his child and sin happens, he's abounding in grace. And if the Lord permits and we have time, we'll get there in Hebrews. And he works all things to good for those who loved him, love him and are called according to his purpose. So again, we talked about being redeemed. We talk about being in heaven with the ability to worship him. Worship costs something. If it doesn't cost anything, it's not worship. It might cost time, it might cost embarrassment, it might cost money, but it costs something. So now you're basically saying, so what is worship? Worship means you're giving yourself of something, for something. Worship, it, it means you're giving weight, it's a, his holiness, he's heavy, but you're giving, you're sh- expressing a worth. I'm, I'm, I'm saying he's worth something. I'm gonna worship God. And, Recently, not too long ago, I went through this with Pastor Rob, right? Second Samuel 24, if you'd read just verses 24 and 25, you know the story. We're going to go backwards through this. So if you don't know it, you might be a little confused. But <laughs> it says in, in verse 24, Then the king said to Aruna, No, 
but this is King David, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So we know there was a plague on Israel. David prayed after he worshiped and the plague was stayed. Well, why was there a plague? David sinned. David sinned and a plague came. And it seems somewhat strange that David is the one that had to do something in order for it to stop. Again, you can see Christ through this whole thing. Jesus said every single thing written in the Old Testament was written to me. It's prophetic. But I'm not going to worship God with that which cost me nothing. So he bought something and he gave a burnt offering, the whole thing, to him. Well, it wasn't his idea to do a burnt offering. Go back to verse 18. It says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, the prophet, went up as the Lord commanded. So we also know that in order to worship, it has to be according to his word. He's got a plan, an ordained way to worship him. And it's biblical and it's according to his word. He's the one that tells us what pleases him. Without faith, you can't please him. So David sinned and there was a consequence to it. And God had the answer to the consequence of his sin. And he had an ordained way of doing it. He came to him, he told him, and he went and he stayed it. It says in verse 10, going back a little bit, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. David's confessing his sin to God. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord. I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. And we know he offered three things. And David said, I'd rather fall into the hand of your punishment than of people because you're gracious and you might forbear. So we know that he had a guilty conscience or conviction of the Holy Spirit. So when we sin, there's conviction. When you have conviction, you go to the word of God and you do what he says. And then you pray and you follow him and you worship him because he's good. Because he, he, And the thing that kind of caught my attention, I just recently read through this again, just like what does it mean that God permits something? Like kind of, how many times have I read through that? How many times have I read through this? Verse 1, chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. God was mad with the nation of Israel. He moved David to do something. And that something had a consequence on the people. That's why reading through it multiple times, you're like, why would God be punishing the people because of David's sin? Well, no, God was actually upset with the people of Israel. That's why it happened. David just wanted to please God. He walked with God. David's a sinner, just like you and me. He wasn't perfect. 
if God takes his hand off you, you're able to do the worst sin as anyone else on the planet. So would I. Except for grace and opportunity, there go I. I could do anything. Reading in the Old Testament, the, the nations around Israel wanted to destroy them, but God kept them from doing it. God wants to punish his people. He took his hand off of them, let them do what they wanted to do anyways, because it fulfilled his purpose. And then afterwards, he punished them because they wanted to do it for the wrong reason. They just hated God, so they wanted to kill God's people. God allowed them to do something that they wanted to do in order to accomplish his will, but because their hearts were wrong in it, they got punished. And that's the only way I can see this making any sense. God doesn't tempt anybody, nor does, can he be tempted. He didn't tempt David. He didn't force David to sin. He must have taken his hand off him, right? Do not remove thy Holy Spirit from me. Don't leave me. Without you, I'm done. God had a plan. He used David to accomplish it. David's own sinful heart had something to do with it because he cried out to God and asked for repentance and asked for help. And guess what? God never told him why he did it. God didn't explain himself to David. And David didn't need it. He didn't need an explanation. God's like, I'm just going to, and he praises David in the New Testament. He praises all of the people under the blood. Let God use you. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't even need to know. Now the question is, is, am I willing to allow God to do what he wants to do so that he might be glorified? I'm just going to worship him. And if you, all you want to do is to be close to him and to praise him, you're going to have a great life, and it's going to be exciting. Hebrews 4, and we'll end here. We're not all that. God has a plan. We, don't, we can't figure it out. He didn't call us to tell us to be smart enough to know it. It's impossible to know. We're sinful, God, and again, that's the only thing to me that makes sense. Where, grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. You know what? He had David's heart, and when David sinned, he revealed grace in it. I don't believe that you can separate grace and faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, and our faith is in Christ. They go hand in hand, grace and faith. It tells us in Hebrews 4, the verse 3 verses, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And now again, he's talking about the Jews as they were brought out of Egypt, went through the wilderness towards this promised land. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The writer of Hebrews says they knew the gospel. They were walking, they came out of Egypt, they were, they were looking for something else. They had prophets that were there. The spirit of the prophecy is the spirit of Christ, it tells us. The, the gospel was preached to them. They got saved the same way we do. But the word, but the word which they heard did not profit them. They knew the word of God, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. You hear the word, and you're obedient to it faithfully, graciously. God is gracious enough for you to hear. What do we do with what we hear? For we who have believed do enter that rest. 
doesn't matter what happens to me anymore. Doesn't, David didn't care what happened to him. You know me king, fine, then you have to remove the old king because I'm not going to take it myself. I don't care if I'm king or not. Oh, you're throwing me out. My son's going to be king, fine. We're going to go to battle? Okay, how? I don't care what happens. I'm just going to walk with you. For we who have believed enter that rest. That's your problem now. As he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, God preordained and planned everything that he had for your life. When you were going to be born, who your parents were, the country you were going to be born in, the estate that you have, the stage of life that you were in when you got saved. And he says, once you hear my voice, mix it with faith, don't move quickly, trust me, and just walk with me. Let me control your life. I'm a good master, and some of us have to prove other masters bad before we get to that point where we say, I give up. I was pretty old when I got saved and had a lot of masters, and they're not good. They're painful, actually. The word mixed with faith enter in. And we also know, so what, what do they use as an analogy? They came out of Egypt. How'd they get out of Egypt? How'd they get away from them? The Red Sea. Paul tells us that they were baptized in the sea. That's a picture of what? It's a picture of salvation. So they, went, they came out. They got saved. There's still another Jordan that they had to cross. There's a wilderness in between it. What happens when they cross the Jordan? I mean, a lot of the old Baptist songs say that's a picture of heaven. Pastor Jeff taught us that, no, they got baptized, they came out of the Red Sea, and now they have a choice, which most of them did not make, too, right? Joshua, Caleb, they're like, you know what, God's amazing. Going, in a, It's a picture, and they went through another baptism. This is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is now a mature walk with Christ. This is about giving God your life and giving up and letting him do it. There were battles there. There were giants there. The fruit manna just stopped. They had to gather their own fruit. All of a sudden, they had to grow up and be mature. And, it, and they had victory, and there was growth. It was, a, it was a picture of just walking with him on this journey. And, yeah, they messed up. And God was gracious, and he fixed it. They just learned to walk with God. Okay, just walk around the seven times. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I know. That's probably why he said it, because it doesn't make sense. Because you need to learn something. And then the next time, they went to go do the same thing. You don't even need that many people. And then that failed. AI. And then, you know, they had this whole growth period where they, where they grew and they learned. Hebrews 4.4. 4. For he had spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, the rest, and those to whom it was first preached, the gospel was preached to them in the wilderness, did not enter because of disobedience. It didn't say they didn't enter heaven. It just says they didn't enter into that rest. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We read about that, why God permitted divorce. Today, if you will hear his voice, why are we not walking with him? Why are we settling for God's second best? Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works 
as God did from his. I don't have to figure out where I'm going. I don't have to figure out how to get there. I don't have to strive. Striving implies what? Effort. He's about to say strive to enter into rest. It almost seems like an oxymoron or contradiction to us. Verse 11, therefore let us be diligent, or in the King James, strive to enter that rest. If you're going to covet anything, covet God's best gifts. Seems like it's okay for certain things to covet. It's okay to strive if you're striving for rest. Why? 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, telling you what's him and what's you, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You don't even know what's going on in your own heart. Who can know it? But the word of God will pierce right through it. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We've been redeemed. We're going to give an account to him. So shouldn't we seek him for what we're doing, how well we're doing while we're here? 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest, and if you're saved, you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. It's not about how strong you are. He can sympathize with how bad we fail, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, he never missed the mark. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's not about digging in, trying harder, being perfect, and sucking it up. It's like David failing and just walking with him and always going to him no matter what. I'm going to build you a house. I I don't need you to build me a house. But your son will. Praise the Lord. I don't need to do it. I don't have to have my own plan. I just want to do what you want for me. Well, Father, we just thank you that we can come to you. You're a king on a throne. That can be intimidating. But you call it a throne of grace. Lord, that implies that we don't deserve to be there. And not only are we aware that we're not worthy to be there, but we know you know. But you tell us to come boldly to it. You understand where we're at. You understand where you want us to be. Lord, we just pray that You'd be working in us. We know that you are faithful. You are the faithful one. You're the only faithful one. And you're going to finish what you started. That's our only hope, Lord. We know that we're going to be with you because of what you did. Just give us hearts to praise you for that. If we just thank you and worship you and walk with you, we know you'll take care of the rest. That's our hope. Come quickly, in Jesus' name.